you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Uh, we are making our way straight through uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is why you end up on Mark 4, 10 through 12. Because if you weren't going through the Gospel of Mark, you would probably never land on those three verses um, and, and make them your text, partially because they're so related directly to what comes in front of it and directly with what comes behind it. So right in front of it, you remember, is the parable of the sower unexplained. Right behind it, the parable of the sower explained. And in the explanation of the parable of the sower, sort of the organic, um, deeper understanding of what's really going on in verses 10 through 12 comes out. But if, you, if you're a faithful Bible reader and if you are actually keep your brain turned on um, when, when you're reading your Bible, which is n- not an altogether widespread phenomenon, um, uh, you know, sometimes we, we get into the habit of just reading our Bible to get our Bible reading done. But if you're actually, if you're actually paying attention to what you're reading, um, you'll, you'll probably find yourself at one of those moments in our text for this morning when you say, Jesus can't have said that. Uh, that, that must be different, like in the Greek or something, because he can't. He can't have said that. And this morning we'll find out whether he really said that or not. I'll give you a hint. I think he did. Um, which, is, which is why it's there in the Bible and why we're going to be uh, uh, looking at it uh, together in just a, a couple of minutes. So let's stand together one more time and uh, we'll read Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, and then we'll look to the Lord in prayer. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, you tell us that we are among the blessed if we are among those who fear you. If we are among those who find in your commandments the stuff of exceedingly great delight, your people will turn out to be the mighty in the land, and your seed shall spread over all the earth as it indeed has. Lord, you promise to bless. 
the generation of the upright. You promise to pour out spiritual riches and blessing in your house. And you assure us that your righteousness and the righteousness of your people will be found standing forever. Lord, you encourage us to be those who are generous, who lend, who complete your word in justice and and live it out so that we will never stumble. And we live in a, a generation of spiritual stumbling all around us. Spiritual darkness is in the ascendancy. It is widespread. It is culturally dominant. And we are among those seeking to survive such a place by your grace. And so that when we see these things going on and we see the ascendancy of wickedness around the world, in our own nation, in our own political sphere, we ask that you would enable us to trust you in such a way as not to be afraid but that our heart would be made firm and that we would find ourselves in all circumstances trusting in you in all circumstances. Lord, we think of a couple of our people heading into surgery in the coming week, and I pray for them that you'd enable them to stand in those circumstances without fear, trusting in you. And those in long recoveries coming out of illnesses and trouble, may you enable them to stand in that circumstance, trusting in you. Father, you assure us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You you assure us that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. You assure us that when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and your mercy follow us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But at the end of Psalm 112, you warn, you warn any and every generation that the desires of the wicked will perish. That which the wicked find so strong, so interesting, so progressive, so dominant, 
the desires of the wicked will perish. May you enable us to see such things and hear such things so as to walk in the light as you are in the light. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. In the last number of months in our staff meetings, we've been using a book by a guy by the name of John Frame called The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which is largely his um, exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, that's a little over half of the book in, in any case. But uh, uh, Frame is still living. He is um, in his 80s now. He's uh, taught theology for um, a generation plus. Uh, in uh, Reformed theological circles. And he's kind of famous for this little quirky thing that he likes to do. He likes to divide everything up into triads. And so like the Christian life and Christian ethics and Christian thinking, he, he divides it into this triad. He refers to it as a perspectival triad. Three simultaneous perspectives that are always... Um, going on in in any ethical decision in any spiritual decision you have a what he calls an existential perspective we'll talk about in just a moment a situational perspective and a normative perspective and we've seen all of these prominently at play right here in uh, in the gospel of Mark uh, but I'm going to start out uh, with the existential perspective in the Gospel of Luke. And the, and the issue is evangelism. So here's the existential perspective on van, evangelism. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones them to whom it has been sent, how often I have gathered, desired to gather your children like a hen gathers a brood under her wings. But you were not willing. So in the existential perspective on evangelism, Jesus is saying, Oh, that Jerusalem would come to know me. I plead with them, come, come, come. So much so that in other pers- he, he weeps over Jerusalem to this end. So, strong desire and evangelism for people to respond and to come. Um, and, and that sort of existential perspective is what tends to drive uh, missions in the world, right? What we refer to as concern for the lost. So, like last Sunday night when we were having our budget meeting, Pastor Dan was up and he was saying one of the things that uh, is sort of a recommendation of church planning is that church planning churches tend to be more evangelistic. Shouldn't be. Uh, we should all be equally evangelistic, but the sociologists tell us it's, it is the case. Uh, and therefore, uh, church planning, one of the things that recommends it is its evangelistic tendency in this sense because we are concerned for the reaching of the lost evangelism in existential perspective. Now last week we made reference to Revelation 
Chapter 12, verse 9, which reads this way. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is evangelism in the situational perspective. So the situation in which anybody does evangelism in this world is they do it in a world largely given over to the temptations and to the deceit of the devil. That's so much the case that the same author of the book of Revelation, John, in 1 John 5.19, can say this in contrast between believers and unbelievers. He says, of believers, we are from God, little children. And then he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Like, whoa. We are from God, little children. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is, the present situation is that deception is dominant, massively successful, and that evangelism is therefore quite difficult because it's done in a situation where a great deceiver is at loose in the world and the vast majority of the world lay in the power of of the evil one. That's the situation of our lives. That's the situation of our evangelism. Now, our text for this morning falls under the category of what he would refer to as the normative perspective. The normative perspective. And as we experience it in this text, it's, it's kind of, you could call it the shock and awe perspective, uh, where, where Jesus talks about this normative perspective in at least a shocking way. And if you're not completely put off by it and meditate on it a little bit, that shock will tend to turn into the awe of God, and to a, a reflection on the fact that God is overwhelmingly large and overwhelmingly powerful and overwhelmingly in control. Now remember this, these, pres- these, these perspectives are not to be played off against each other. They are to be maintained simultaneously. So the awe of God is to be maintained with a deep care about the lost lost while recognizing a very, very difficult situation in which to work and live and especially in which to evangelize. But our text for this morning does fall heavily onto uh, what Frame would call the normative Perspective. I state our thesis for this morning from these three verses this way. Unbelief is the product of the judgment of God. You say, oh, well, what, you just mentioned the, the deceiver. 
Yes, that's all true. That's all true. That's the situation. That's really there. That's really happening. But that's not the perspective that is being highlighted in this text. The perspective highlighted in this text, compatible with that one, but not making the same point, is this. Unbelief is the product of the judgment of God. Could pose three questions to our our text this morning. Really simple outline, very basic uh, to what's happening here. Number one, who are the spiritual insiders? Who are the spiritual insiders? And we meet them in verse ten. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But then it goes on, and this is where we get the insider-outsider metaphor. But for those outside, everything is in parables. He's about to talk say something about them, I'd say, at the the end of the verse. But here, who they're contrasted with is those around Jesus with the twelve, of whom it is said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, we've seen this insider-outsider thing played out repeatedly throughout Mark's gospel, and particularly throughout chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. So back to Mark 3:31. His mother and his brothers came to this house, remember, that's packed with people. Jesus is inside. He's been healing, but now he's teaching. His mother and brothers come, and the word passes through the crowd. Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. Now remember, they've come because they think that Jesus is going off the rails a little bit. Um, and uh, they mean to take him home and try to give him a bit of a, a reset. Um, that's the context in, in Mark chapter 3. And here's what we read in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside. They're literally standing outside, but by the end of this little paragraph, it's also going to be plain And they are spiritual outsiders in some sense. Because Jesus is about to contrast the family inside with the family outside. At the end of that paragraph. And you remember how he does it. He says in verse 34... Behold, my mother and my brothers are whoever does the will of God. This is my mother and sister and brother. There it is. The genetically connected people are outside. The real insiders are those who hear and do the will of God. These are my brothers and sisters mother, insiders, and outsiders. 
Uh, that's, that's the picture. Uh, remember the parable of the sower describes insiders this way. Those with ears to hear. Let everyone who has ears to hear, hear. To the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Implying, of course, not everybody has ears to hear. Insiders, outsiders, insiders, outsiders. book of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 14, which is a metaphorical picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Here's what we read, very, very tightly connected to the insider language that we find in our text. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, that is, city of New Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. And on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You get the picture? So who dwells in the New Jerusalem? Who has connections to the new heavens and the new earth? Those closely connected to the apostles. Not personally, their message. Those connected to the apostolic message. The foundation of the eternal city is the gospel that came through the apostles, the gospel that's in the world today. That's the foundation. That's the key to membership, citizenship in the everlasting city. The exact same metaphor being used here in our text. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, twelve apostles, with the twelve, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now that little, that little phrase, it has been given, it has been given, is a perfect passive verb. Perfect passive verb. Some grenarians refer to this as a, a divine passive, or others use the term a theological passive. They say that because God is actually the subject of the verb, given to him by God. By God uh, is, is, is the idea. Um, to you, it has been given at some time in the past with Results running right into the present. To you, it has been given to be born again, to come to faith, to know Christ, to be within the fold, to be in the, in the path of ongoing, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. To you, it has been given. What's been given? The secret of the kingdom of God. Um, to you it has been given to be people of God types. Not, not to your background. It's not that you were necessarily raised in the church. But somehow you ended up, you, you ended up Bible people. You ended up sermon people. You ended up 
Christian people. You ended up among the people of God. That was given. God did that. To you, it has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of God. I'm forever quoting that uh, Kevin Van Hooser quote, right? People of God are called together by God to embody God's word and worship witness and wisdom for the sake of the world. You could, you could use the metaphor here and say it this way. Spiritual insiders are called together by God to embody God's word in worship, witness, and wisdom for the sake of the world. Spiritual insiders. Uh, that's who they are. They have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. As Dan read, or as it was read this morning by uh, um, uh, Russ, call the worship text, or no, it was Dan that read it. It was the initial call to worship text. I had it right the first time. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, right? Verse 4 in particular. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Paul's explanation of how somebody becomes a spiritual insider. Here's how Mark puts it. To him who has been given, given by God, theological passive, given by God to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. If you're a believer this morning, that's the explanation. That's how, you know, you can, you can think of all the details that God used situational perspective, the existential perspective, but here's the normative perspective and how it is that you're a Christian. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, as Paul puts it, or as Mark puts it here. It has been given, it was given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's who the spiritual insiders are. Question two, who are the spiritual outsiders? And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything's in parables. And as we noted uh, over the last couple of weeks in parables, everything's in dark sayings. Everything's in riddles. Everything's in enigma. Not necessarily always presented to them that way, but experienced that way pretty universally. Everything's experienced like a parable. Everything's experienced as an enigma. Everything is experienced as a riddle. For those outside, everything in parables. This is a design. For those outside, this is how it's going to be. So that's the outsider, insider to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to those outside... Everything, everything in parables. Everything in parables. To the one it's been given, to the other outside. To you it has been given. I love the way Luke describes this in Acts 16, where he describes the conversion of Lydia. Paul goes out, he knows there'll be some God-fearing women um, on on the Sabbath. 
meeting together someplace, so he goes out and visits with them, and Lydia is in this group. And, and Paul starts sharing with this group uh, that's gathered. And here's what we read in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That is, she, she hung around with Jewish people and did Jewish forms of, of worship. She was drawn to that. And then he reads, he says this, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It was given. It has been given. The Lord opened her heart. Now that starts to be the contrast that we're coming up to where Jesus is about to make a major quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. But I want to go to a, a text that we didn't make reference to when we went by a few weeks ago. We were on the little paragraph that's talking about the unpardonable sin, right? The sin against the Holy Spirit, not forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about the fact that if you're concerned for your soul, if, you're, if you desperately want to be forgiven, you almost certainly did not commit that sin because that's what that sin does, apparently, is just uh, lock the person forever in an unrepentant state. When that discussion takes place, there's a reference that often is made over to the book of Isaiah. Uh, and this is worth, uh, if you have your Bible, this is worth looking at. This is, a, this is a kind of a shocking verse. Not kind of. This is a deeply shocking verse. Isaiah 63.10. Isaiah 63.10. Speaking of the people of Israel, um, who Isaiah is, was ministering to, Isaiah 63.10 says this. But they rebelled and grieved his spirit. That's why it gets connected to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit stuff in, in Mark and Luke and Matthew. But they rebelled and grieved his spirit. Therefore, therefore, he, that is God, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. That's bad. That's bad. If the infinite God turns to be your enemy, that's bad. We never make horror movies about that. Because they would be too horrible. The infinite God turns to be 
your enemy. Uh, he says to you, in a sense, so you want to be outsiders. All right? You will be outsiders. You will be outsiders. You will be outsiders for good. You will be outsiders forever. Most people in the world right now, they pay no attention to any of these things. They don't worry about these things. Um, we think of uh, evangelism in the world. We, we often feel like that we're like begging people to come and pay a little interest to Jesus, and they're not interested, um, but we, we try to get them interested anyways. Um, but uh, we, we sort of picture God as he's got his hat in hand, uh, you know, right now in America, all the, all the uh, sociologists tell us that there's more and more people that are making no religious affiliation at all. And so how that's presented, you know, on NPR or somewhere else is that, you know, you know, Christianity is on the wane. God's having a hard time in America. Uh, he's trying his best to scrape together some followers, but it's not going well for him. Frankly, uh, you know, secularism in America is on the rise, and, and secularism, you know, has a fair lead over God at this time. Um, that's, how, that's how it's presented. That's how it's thought about. That's how it's put. Um, and, and so we're a little concerned about the Lord sometimes, if we're not careful. Um, Jesus is never concerned about the Lord in that way. Isaiah is never concerned about the Lord in that way. Uh, but they rebelled and they grieved the Spirit, and therefore he turned to be their enemy. And he fought, he fought against them. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Now at this point, this is where Jesus is about to say the really radical thing. The really radical thing. And that's going to be our third point. But just before we go to it, just before we actually get to where Jesus says the really radical thing, I'm going to refer again to a, a book somebody gave me years ago. It's really, it's, it's not a bad book. It's a, it's, a, it's a good book. It's actually a good book as far as it, as it goes. Um, uh, written by a guy named Philip Yancey 20-some years ago. The Jesus I Never Knew. The Jesus I Never Knew. So in The Jesus I Ever Knew, what, what Philip Yancey does is he writes this book primarily for people like me um, and, and some of you, not all of you, but people like me and like some of you who were raised sort of in Christian fundamentalism, right? And so um, The Jesus I Never Knew is uh, the Jesus of the Bible is actually a little bit more concerned about social justice than the fundamentalists were. And so that's the Jesus I never knew. He's the social justice Jesus. That's fair. That's fair. That's accurate. That's, that, that, that's worth pointing out. But as I've said many times before, and I'll say again here, but he doesn't even become, he doesn't come within 250 yards of this Jesus that we never knew. Uh, the Jesus that shows up here, and, and not most radically here. Uh, if you, you want to meditate on the most radical 
place at the end of one of Jesus' parables in Luke, Luke 19, 27. Here's how Jesus ends the parables. The parable. And Jesus is the king in this parable. So here's how the parable ends. Luke 19, 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Say, Jesus can't say that. Jesus never talked like that. Well, see, that's why we go through books of the Bible. Because that'll force you to end up meeting the Jesus you never knew. The Jesus that's there in the Bible. And that Jesus shows up here. Here. In our third point. So thirdly then. Why is Jesus quoting Isaiah 6, 9? Why is Jesus quoting Isaiah 6, 9? And this is where, as I said by way of introduction, when you're reading your Bible, if you are really clicked in to what's going on, this, you, you might find yourself almost gasp out loud when you read these words, especially as translated here in the ESV pretty literally. So why is Jesus quoting Isaiah 6-9? He's answering the, he's, he's explaining to them why for outsiders everything is in parables. And here's his explanation. So that, or in order that, They may indeed see and not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Yeah, but you want them to turn and be forgiven. You invite them to turn and be forgiven. That's true from a certain perspective. And that's not quite true. From another perspective, the one we're on now, the one where Jesus quotes this, these intimidating words, which are a paraphrase. This is neither a direct quotation of the Hebrew uh, text of Isaiah 6, or even it's not a direct quotation of the Septuagint text. It's close to both of them, but it drops between both of them. This is Jesus' paraphrase of that passage. He certainly has the idea found there nailed down tight. Um, Nailed down tight. So remember, context is king, so to to understand what's going on here, we have to remind ourselves of the context of Isaiah 6. So let me, let's, if you have your Bible, go there, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to, Jesus is quoting verse 9, but we'll start in verse 1. It's called Isaiah and the presentation of his ministry. So here's the context of these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the one. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people. And here's where Jesus picks him up. Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts And be healed. Go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make the heart of this people dull. Isaiah is being told. Yes, I'm sending you out as a prophet. I'm telling you in advance, almost no one is going to listen to you. Almost no one. In fact, you're going to turn people off left and right. You are going to make the heart of this people dull. Well, then why send me? Right? See, why do evangelism? Most people aren't at all interested. Most people think the message stinks. Not everybody, but most. It's true. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. Except for those to whom it has been given. Real dismal. Put me in mind enough. One of the Beatles' most famous songs, the final verse of it goes, 
this way, Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. Britain ahead of us, tipping vastly secular when the Beatles are writing this. What a joke. All this Jesus stuff still. Wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one got saved. God was saying to Isaiah, that's going to be your ministry, Isaiah. Not no one. But it's going to feel like no one. It's going to feel like no one. Isaiah responded, then I cried out, oh Lord, how long? How long am I supposed to keep this up? And then listen to this. Until the cities lie waste without inhabited and the houses without people. In other words, until the judgment of God falls on the people for their unbelief. How will it be like that? Jesus says to our generation, you look out in our generation, how do you reach our generation? You tell them the truth. Oh, that'll never work. They won't like that. No, they won't. But that's what you do. And to whom it has been given, they'll come. They'll respond. Like you did. Now again, you have to hang on to all the perspectives. The existential perspective. If you were, if you were here uh, early this morning, you saw a few of, of uh, slides of the um, step-by-step team in, in, in Mongolia. Hete uh, uh, was up here last week uh, as part of a, an announcement. And he's, uh, he, he's famous in Among lore for this little... For this little phrase, this is the existential perspective on evangelism, and, and Hete, a number of years ago, came up with this for our step-by-step team, which travels across the wastelands of Mongolia to get to these fire villages to share the gospel uh, there. He came up with this, never too far to go, never too hard to get there. That's the existential perspective right there. Never too far to go, never too hard to get there. Never a conversation not worth having. Uh, never spending too much to have that conversation, no matter how badly it seems to go. That's the perspective. That's the existential perspective. The situational perspective is, again, as we said, wow, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and remarkably so, and disastrously so in our present generation. But then the normative perspective But God is not struggling. He's not failing. He's not coming up short. He's gathering his own. And you should reflect on your own faith the way that somebody like Charles Wesley did two or three centuries ago. Right? We sing this hymn with some regularity. 
Or Wesley said, of this normative perspective, this being given. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? And I came to know it. And I came to embrace it. And I came to love it and walk in it. And that's many of you. How did that happen? It had been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God in that marvelous, saving, eternally significant way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice, that you would give us ears to hear. I pray for some who are here this day, that this day you might grant them ears to hear, that they would find themselves trembling at the thought of a God like you, who is, who is a sovereign Lord and not some sort of pathetic spiritual beggar as they may have imagined you to be. That you'd enable them to see their, their own sin. Their desperate need for forgiveness. Their desperate need to learn your ways and to find a new heart that desires to walk in your ways. To own your ways. To affirm your ways. But in the meantime, to find forgiveness for ignoring your ways, mocking your ways, disdaining your ways. Lord, I pray that you would give some ears to hear this day and a heart to turn and find the very forgiveness that Jesus warns most of the outsiders in the first century were never going to find. And most of the outsiders in the 21st century aren't finding it either. It's all parables to them. Lest they turn and be forgiven. But Lord, it's our prayer this day that some in this room even in this day, might turn and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.